Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. In the first stage of a poltergeist haunting, the entity will confine itself to making noise, as if it's testing its victims, like a jailer softening up a prisoner. This can last days or weeks, but the effect is to disorient, terrify, exhaust. And that is when the second stage starts. Events will now start to gravitate towards one particular person. The focus. Shirley, tell him to move it again. Shirley, don't! Donald, move the chair. Please? I'm Danny Robbins and this is the Battersea Poltergeist. This episode, as Harold Chibbert begins his investigation back in 1956, it's time for me to meet our only surviving witness, the real life Shirley. So I'm going to ask you now, for the benefit of everybody listening, for the hardened sceptics out there. Yes. You saw heavy pots and pans fly through the air in your room. Yes. Yes. Episode 2, Shirley. So this episode, we're going to hear the testimony of the real-life Shirley. But first, let's go back to Monday the 12th of March, 1956, as Harold Chippett sets up camp at the Hitchings' house. (sighs) General equipment, camera, thermometer, spare notepads, spare pens, sleeping bag. How long... You expecting to be here, Mr. Chibber? Chib. As long as it takes, Wally. I've told Mrs. Chib not to expect me much. Now, if you don't mind, the final ghost hunting essential a cup of tea. Milk, two sugars. Coming right up. <laughs> You're quite weird, aren't you? Pardon? Turning up at people's houses, sleeping in the kitchen, not getting paid. Why'd you do it? Listen. I don't hear nothing. For once. That nothing is filled with the voices of the dead. Desperately trying to make contact. What if we can hear them? Forget penicillin or or space travel. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing? 
Is that what Donald is then? Someone dead? Ah, I knew there was something else. My torch. What does he want, Chib? Who the hell is he? That's what we're going to find out. But the dead are only half the story. Darkness comes from light. So let's start with the living. Shirley Hitchings, who the hell are you? I told you last episode that we have Chib's original files on the case. Well, they've been sitting in that cardboard box for the last 25 years in a bungalow on the south coast of England. My husband and I went up to get them on the death of Mr Chibbet from his house. And they came back here and went straight up into our loft. That bungalow belongs to the other amazing resource we have. I never, ever looked at the notes. I didn't want to bring their memories back, if you know what I mean. Shirley's 80 now. She looks very different to the dark-haired teenager in the old newspaper articles on the case. But she hasn't lost any of her sharpness. So how do you feel about it now? I feel very different now. I'm not that scared little girl anymore. I am apprehensive that it could bring Donald back. I was first introduced to Shirley two years ago and I have been obsessed with her story ever since. Today, we're chatting on a crisp autumn morning. She's sitting armed with a cup of tea prepared by her husband, Derek, and she's ready to tell you her story. So, number 63 Wycliffe Road, just a very ordinary-looking house from the outside. But inside, something extraordinary happened. Oh, it was horrendous. It really was. I wouldn't want that back again, ever. I don't know what I'd do. (laughs) You're laughing there, Shirley, but this has affected you in a big way, hasn't it? Yes, yes. If you had to sum up the effect this has had on you, the impact it's had on your life, what would you say? I'm sorry that it happened because it took all my teenage years. I didn't have a normal life. I had life up until it happened, and from there on until it went, I didn't have a life. I just existed. Tell me about 15-year-old Shirley. What was she like? At the time, i just left school and I was looking forward to going to art school. I was a bit arrogant and, um, I suppose, a bit precocious because I was, I was brought up as an only child and spoiled rotten by my mother. What do you think? About what? My new gloves, Mum bought them. Do you think I look like Marilyn Monroe? Or like Graham back in the nursing base. Mm. Checking old codgers prostate. <laughs> <laughs> Mother. Here's two, Bob. Don't tell your dad. Yeah, I heard that. Don't get into trouble, young lady. Am I? Oh, yeah, and avoid the boys with the tight trousers. <laughs> oh, God. Thanks, Nan. <laughs> I had loads of girlfriends. We had the local town hall... And because my adopted brother, John, worked there, he would get us tickets for, like, the local hop night. And I would go with four or five of my friends to dance, to jive to the latest music. 
you, my gorgeous girl. Growing up so fast. Gonna leave me soon, aren't you? Your old crippled mum. Never. Liar. I remember when I was your age, nicking off to meet your dad. I could dance then. And we had proper music. That old black magic has me in its spell. That old black magic that, that you weave so well. <laughs> Don't grow up too fast, Shell. Stay my little girl a while longer. At the end of January, 1956, the banging starts. What do you remember about that? The whole house shook. And Nick, both sides next door. Mum, hold my hand, Shell. It was like an air raid. We just used to sit in the kitchen. The lights would go on and off. It won't come back on. Light a candle. The next night, and the next night, it happened again and again. And he kept it up for some time. And we were shattered and really frightened. Sometimes people talk about an atmosphere in a house. Oh, my God, yes. You could, looking back, you could cut it with a knife. It was though there was a presence there watching you all the time. Who's here? Donald. Last episode, I introduced you to our experts, psychology professor Kieran O'Keefe and writer and parapsychologist Evelyn Hollow. So, Kieran and Evelyn, Chib said that he wanted to get to know Shirley. We're doing that here. What do you make of her? Getting to hear her voice was incredible. Um, it's uh, it's a real gift that she is still with us and we're able to talk to her about it. But for me, really, the key thing was that talking to her now, in her old age, she was so afraid that she thought that even talking about it might bring him back. She was so terrified she thought they were going to die. That is immensely traumatic. Kieran, going back to your, your hardcore sceptic status... Did you believe her when you were listening to her? Yes, 100% I did. And that's the thing with paranormal testimony. The majority of the time you're dealing with individuals that genuinely believe this is happening to them or has happened to them. To pick up on the trauma stuff, let's talk about it You know, just in terms of the parents and also the grandmother's reaction to the phenomena. There is instant fear from them. And we know from f- recent research that actually you can have vicarious learning of fear. Evelyn, um, listening to Shirley describing the banging, did anything leap out at you? Uh, Yeah, definitely. uh, One of the standout lines of her testimony is, he kept it up, not it, he kept it up. This kind of personification of them uh, taking the noises and not just attributing it to a person, but to a person that has a, a gender or a personality and then eventually a name, is quite interesting because at what point do you go from thinking uh, the noise is created by you know an object or even a small animal to he? There's a real conscious kind of jump there. And Kieran, they've, they've got this sense of this, this presence in the house. Well, I think that's a natural reaction to the fact that you've got something that is invading their home. 
and the fear will be creating those physiological responses which will be an increase in heart rate it'll be increase in blood pressure or lung capacity sweating all of that which gear you up to fight or flight if that is continually happening that can be detrimental to your health but also can affect your perception so we know from decades of research that our perception can be altered and influenced by things like fear anxiety but also lack of sleep there's an idea that comes from a researcher McLean in the 60s that we have uh, an instinctive brain called the lizard brain and kind of a reason brain called the monkey brain and that these two parts of the brain can be in conflict with each other where you've got the instinctive fight or flight in response to stimuli but then you've also got the reason the reflection the understanding part which is the monkey brain effectively saying no let's try and understand what's going on here and there's a constant conflict especially because the lizard brain you know, from some perspectives, is regarded as the old brain. So it's always going to be in situations of danger or risk. It's going to be the one that seems to operate first. So in a case like this, it's lizard versus monkey. Yes, you could say that, yeah. And lizard wins. It does feel as though the lizard wins, but also they're forced into an environment, a house, but they have to stay. They're not flighting, they're not disappearing. They have to effectively stay and fight. If Shirley and her family are already frightened, then things are about to get a lot worse. It was February 18th. Describe it. We were all in the kitchen, eating breakfast. No one had slept a wink. And then suddenly... Ow! Oh, that hit me in the face! It's Shirley's glove. Shirley, did you throw us? No. It flew off the floor. You must have seen it. No. Mum? I was looking the other way. Oh, very funny, show. It wasn't me. Everyone's knackered. I know you like attention, but... Oh, shut your mouth. Shirley. I'm not being accused like that. I'm bloody well not. We do not say bloody. She couldn't have thrown it. Then maybe it didn't it. Oh, you're saying I made it up now? I'm saying things don't fly through the air. I'm going to work. This house is starting to do my bloody head in. So, Shirley, what happened next? After about a couple of weeks, things started to fly around the room. Things were thrown. Pots and pans that were on the kitchen stove in the next room would come flying out the door, floating, and go across the room and speed up. They would suddenly come towards you, you dodge them. Sometimes they would hover and then go down to the floor. Other times they'd hit bang into the wall. Shelley, any story like this requires us taking the word of the person it happened to. That's right. So I'm going to ask you now, for the benefit of everybody listening, for the hardened sceptics out there. Yes. You saw heavy pots and pans fly through the air in your room. Yes, yes. What else, then? Dad's slippers that he kept by the fireplace would walk round the room on their own. <laughs> that was very scary. Mum? Yes, love? Look at Dad's slippers. <gasps> oh, my God! 
It's so hard, Charlie. This is so hard for me to get my head around. It's such a strange moment. Take me back to 15-year-old Shirley witnessing it. Oh, it can't be happening. Sometimes they would raise off the floor and go off up into the hallway, into the passageway towards the front door. And like a game, I would chase them. They're over there now. Watch out, Nan. Oh, God, no. What is going on? And then they just all of a sudden drop down. You know, how the hell did that happen? I'm hoping that already you're developing your own theories and ideas on what happened at number 63 Wycliffe Road. Or maybe you've got questions, uh, things that you want me and the other investigators to look into. You might be a sceptic, you might be a believer, but if you've got a theory on who or what Donald is, I want to hear from you. You can email me at batterseapoltergeist at bbc.co.uk. I'm in High Wycombe. It's an old market town surrounded by rolling hills in the English countryside, not too far from London. And I'm on my way to Buckinghamshire New University, which is where Kieran works. And he's got a little experiment planned for me that he says might help shed some light on the case. So, Kieran, there's something about Shirley's testimony that leapt out at you. You can never underestimate fear. Fear can be so powerful that it can lead you to misinterpret often quite mundane things. So you could be in a room, for example, and be hearing voices, hearing whispering, and immediately the fear that you have in you is interpreting that as something paranormal and potentially a poltergeist. You could go one step further and say, well, if you had all of the impact of fear on Shirley and others in that room, and you had extreme sleep deprivation, it's not a huge leap, to say that fear could actually make you think that an object is moving of its own accord. So I brought you here for this fear experiment and what's going to happen is a number of different stages. So we need to get your consent because you're going to be going into a virtual reality environment. Once you've done that we have some pre-tests that we want you to do and those are simple perceptual tests. We're then going to put you into the virtual reality environment, hook you up to physiological measuring equipment, which will look at your heart rate, your lung capacity, and also your electrodermal activity, which is your sweat response. So basically, Kieran's about to scare the living shizzle out of me, and then he'll measure exactly what fear does to my body and mind. One thing is troubling me, Kieran. On the wall, there's a little blue plastic box that has written on it, urine and vomit spill kit. (laughs) Some people do have adverse reactions to the VR environment, so that kit is there for a reason. Oh, God. (laughs) Lynn, Kieran's lab technician, helps me fill out the consent form. Be mindful to the content of the VR simulation. For example, if you're phobic of zombies, don't play a zombie game. (laughs) I'm, I'm phobic of fear. I don't know where I stand for this. Things get real as I strap into the equipment that'll monitor my fear. Okay. Is that measuring my pulse then? That will be part of your heart rate measurement, yeah. And then the next two are on your ankle, so about about there. Last of all, 
the VR headset. Okay, so just a reminder, once you're inside the goggles, if you start to feel nauseous or weirded out or anything at all, there's two things you can do. You can either close your eyes and just carry on when you're ready, or you can take the goggles off. This is only my second time doing VR, but I'm now standing in a perfect recreation of a haunted house. Okay, so I'm moving through a door. It's like a really big old house, peeling wallpaper. Okay, I'm in a corridor now. Oh gosh, the lights just went out behind me, it's going dark. Oh, oh God, it's totally dark. Whoa. Oh, what was that? Oh. Okay, I'm going into a room. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm starting to... Oh, oh, gosh, what was that? Into the darkness. Oh, what did I just see there? Did I see something there? I thought I just saw something in the bathroom. Whoa, where are we going? It's gone totally dark. Totally dark now. What's going on? I can't move. My lantern's gone. I'm just stuck and I can't move. That man's behind me. Whoa, where is he now? Whoa! What the hell is that? Whoa. After 10 more minutes of me basically screaming, Lynn rescues me. With the goggles off, I have to retake the perception tests. Kieran leads me through another door in the lab. Welcome to the Hitchings front room. Oh wow, oh my God. It really does look like the Hitchings front room. He set up a surprisingly authentic 1950s lounge. What I'd like you to do is you're going to stay in this room for about 10-15 minutes. Um, just reflect on the experience you've had anyway in the VR. So look out for anything. Okay. Listen for anything. Yeah. Kieran closes the door, leaving me alone in the room. The lights low. My heart still pumping from the VR experience. I find myself concentrating hard on a coffee mug on the table. The longer I stare at it, the more I feel like it might have moved slightly since I entered the room. And I feel like someone's watching me. Maybe Kieran is. I think of that word Shirley used. Presence. But then my rational brain cracks what's going on. This is a stunt. Kieran is pumping infrasound into the room. Low-frequency noises below the range of human hearing, known to create feelings of uneasiness and even hallucinations. I'm relieved when he finally comes back in. Anything at all? Uh, well, I felt uh, uneasy. I could feel my heart going a bit. Um, I felt like I heard some scratching. It seemed to get darker at certain points. It definitely seemed to get darker. Um, it's interesting when you're in this sort of environment and you have that fearful emotion, you're interpreting things in different ways already. You've got the case in your mind, so you're thinking, well, there's, at some point they report some scratching. Maybe that's what it is. But, but was there infrasound in the room? Or? There isn't infrasound, but it's interesting that you're talking about kind of a change in atmosphere or change in mm. feeling. I just felt a certain moment where I definitely felt uneasy, anxious... Uh, and like there was a sudden change in the environment and I definitely felt a, it got much darker at one point. It's bizarre because nothing is set up 
And that was my aim all along. It's just to put you in an environment to go, nothing set up, but you have that anticipation that I might be doing something. You've got fear, so everything starts to be elevated. You're starting to get nervous and anxious about the environment. You're already thinking, Kieran the evil scientist, is he playing infrasound that's making this happen? Because I genuinely feel like something is happening. You can never underestimate fear. So Kieran still has his doubts about the case, and he's not the only one. Back in 1956, John is the sceptic in the Hitchings family. You all witnessed objects flying? Yes, yes. yes we did. Oh. You were always out. At work or in the pub. Convenient. You've seen nothing you feel is strange, John. I... I, I don't know. Tell him. Well, there was this one night. Wally and me were watching TV whilst Kitty got Shirley to bed. All quiet then. Funny, isn't it? How it's only ever noisy when she's around. Eh? Shirley. The banging, scratching, things being thrown. Can you think of one time this happened when she wasn't here? What are you trying to say? You know what she's like. Film star gloves. She likes the attention. You're not seriously saying it's her. Look. We haven't slept for more than a couple hours straight for weeks. Are you sure you were always watching? Couldn't she have chucked things whilst your back was turned? I don't know what you're saying. I was talking to a bloke at work. He told me about this book he read, about a convent of nuns in the Middle Ages. French, I think. All reckoned they'd been taken over by demons. Possessed. They ended up burning some poor priest to death for introducing them to the devil. And now... You know what the experts reckon it was? Hysteria. A bunch of people who spent too long cooped up together. Sound familiar? Who found the key? Who's always first to scream about things flying? Shirley. And then, who called it Donald? What if it's both of them? You know, feeding each other. Shirley! Describe the scene you witnessed. It was like the bedsheet was being pulled off her. Dad! I can't hold it! Shirley, show me your hands. What? Put your hands outside the sheets. You thought she was responsible? She had to be, but she held her hands out and... She's gone again! Oh, bloody hell! See, I'm not doing it! Wally, what's going on? Oh, my God! Look! Look! The sheet beneath was started to slide off too. And as it reached halfway down, that's when it happened. The back was arched. Rigid. Help me! It was like she was hovering. Floating. Maybe six inches over the bed. Next episode on the Battersea Poltergeist. There is an entity, an entity that has some form of consciousness, and we would say that it wishes to communicate. Are you there, Donald? <gasps> All these things that we've been talking about, the objects flying, the girls levitating, that's not random chaos. It's something trying to make contact.
Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.